I'm tired and there are a lot of people around who are tired of asking the question, what to do to improve the lives of Black Britain. All the solutions that come up require capital. By going hat in hand to some other organization, whether it be government, whether it be private funders, please, this is what we believe in. We think you should believe in it. Give us some capital. And that's ridiculous. It is not a sustainable way to actually get change and it's not an empowering way to get change. Welcome to another episode of Secret Leaders from Infamous Media. I'm your host, Dan Morisata, and this is the UK podcast for entrepreneurship. Today's guest has a pretty intimidating CV. It starts at Princeton and, via some jobs for President Obama and some of the world's biggest tech companies, ends with Impact X, a venture capital fund in the UK for underrepresented founders. Eric Collins has so much to share from his laundry list of roles, and I want to get straight into it. So I started where we usually do, at the beginning in the American South. Oh, one note before we begin. My microphone dropped out during the interview, so it's a little bit more of a voiceover, Dan, all the way in this episode, so I hope you enjoy. So I come from a American family and a Southern family. So my father's family has been in the American South in a very small part of the country, which is very isolated. It's called Mashapongo, Virginia. And Mashpongo, which is a Native American word, means stinky water. So you can imagine that's where I come from. And Mashapongo is on a peninsula that is called the Delmarva Peninsula. There's Delaware, Maryland, and then Virginia. On one side of the peninsula is the Atlantic Ocean, you know, the wild Atlantic Ocean. On the other side is the Chesapeake Bay, which is a um, fresh-ish water, but a brackish water, um, large body that was created by a meteor that hit. So that's where my people grew, have been since the 1700s as both free and enslaved people. And we believe in the American South. And I think that's important for talking about my childhood because my childhood and the most formative years were spent in the American South, some in the very deep South and then some in the new South, the mid-Atlantic. I grew up in a family where education was key. So you have a a dad who has his PhD in plant sciences, botany and plant physiology, and is a professor. You have a mother who has her master's degree from NYU and is involved in, in mental health. I have an older brother and I have a younger sister. So I'm a spare because I have an older brother who's just sensational. And then there's me who comes along. And then I have a younger sister who is, you know, a force to be reckoned with in her own right. And so we grew up as a family, not moving from place to place, because dad left the world of academia and went to join a Swiss chemical company as an executive in the 1970s. So he was dealing on the agricultural chemical side of the world, as opposed to teaching those things, then dealing with it as applied in the field and trying to, his real focus is how do you get more acreage yield so that you can feed the world. And if you apply things like radiation, if you apply things like fertilizers, um, herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, how do you make sure that people are not starving in various places and how do you create uh, drought-resistant food stocks and stuffs? And that's what he spent his life doing, which is just an extension of being on the farm. And then the things which I've done since then are sort of extensions of what he does, looking for innovation and then taking innovation and making it commercially applicable. But it was a very lovely childhood that was spent in a rural community in North Carolina. The North Carolina community we moved to when I was about eight years old was a, was a 
place called Greensboro, North Carolina. Greensboro is, is very much known in the lore of civil rights because it is the place where the sit-in movement started for students. High school and college students went to a Woolworth and sat in because they could not, black students could not eat at lunch counters. And so in the shadow of that, that's where I grew up. So in my life, I would say that we were raised to be warriors for social justice. That the point was that you are out in the world, you were brought into this world uh, in a time of conflict because we were all born during the civil rights movement. And that my parents were young radicals, you know, with their kids in tow, going to a black college, and then from there moving to a international chemical company. You know, it's like they were doing things that other people weren't doing. And so we were raised to be able to function in various kinds of environments. With an older brother like mine, um, I had lots of good examples. And then he had followed the examples of my parents. But where I come from, you know, as I say to people, I'm relatively typical. We are the typical family. There are many of us who sit, who have these same sorts of backgrounds and have these same sorts of lineages and have these same sorts of activities that lead to a perception of what is your purpose in the world and why are you doing what you're doing. So I have an older brother who I did the same thing that he did. If he played basketball, I played basketball. If he played the trumpet, I played the trumpet. He went to Princeton, I went to Princeton. Princeton? Okay, no biggie. I asked Eric to tell me more about university. I would say university is an investment. So an African-American who's growing up, the question of, you know, there are issues of systemic racism, there's white supremacy that actually exists, and what are the ways to battle that? And one of the ways to battle that is by making sure that you have the tools to battle it. And some of those tools can be gotten in various environments. Some of it's in a work environment, but some of the best tools are actually an academic environment where you have the opportunity not just to think about, but you have the opportunity to experience, to trade thinking, to tussle head to head, to work on different teams and the like with different groups of people that you might not have seen growing up in Greensboro, North Carolina, and to see sort of how you are matched against them and to demystify what the world looks like outside of your small, closed community. Because when I grew up in North Carolina, we grew up in a black community. In fact, I never lived outside of a black community until I became an adult and went away to university. All my neighbors were black. We went to a integrated high school, but everyone, that all of our doctors were black, all of our lawyers were black, our church was black. It's just, that's the world in which I lived. And so going then to university was an opportunity to start to see another group of people who um, maybe thought very differently. It is an opportunity, it was an opportunity for me to see a bit of how white supremacy actually works in very interesting ways. And I think one of the most interesting ways, if anyone knows the Ivy League, most of the Ivy Leagues have systems of socializing that are relate, that kind of look like fraternities or sororities, but they're a little bit different. So at Princeton, there's a thing called the eating club system. And the eating club system means that the, after you are a fir, after your first year and second year, so first year and sophomore year, you have to then figure out how you're going to eat for the remainder of your time at the university. The university will provide you a cafeteria. Um, Princeton is a very bucolic space, so there's there are no apartments around. It's it's a country environment, and so you everyone lives almost everyone lives on campus, and so you have to then figure out how to eat. And there are these eating clubs which have been established over time. Some eating clubs are selective and therefore very exclusive, and some you can just sign into and say, this is where I'm going to eat. Those eating clubs are established in a hierarchy. The hierarchy in terms of sophistication are 
the selective eating clubs that are the most exclusive uh, and hardest to get into. And the way that you get into them is by interview and by network. And if people choose you, you get to be there and you get to be among this group of people for the final two years of your time at university. And um, hopefully some of those people stay with you forever and you become friends, you do business together, et cetera, et cetera. What I found in those eating clubs and where I found the question of supremacy, white supremacy, was that these clubs had very few women in them and they had very few people of color because part of what we did was in those eating clubs was we had a selection process in the selective ones that meant that you had to interview and you had to appeal to people who had discretion over your being. It sounds a whole lot like going into an interview for a job, you know, collegial environments, places where individuals are, are evaluating you on tangible and intangibles. And a lot of it's based on, is he or she one of us? Will she or he or she fit? Will we enjoy being with this person for you know, the next two years and maybe for the rest of our lives? And those types of decisions which get made sometimes in an instant and come from, you know, you're looking, the, the way you look, the way you walk, the way you talk, the experiences you have, where you spend your summers, how you smell, all of those things are very, very challenging for certain people. For me, it was a very good example of a microcosm that I would be entering. Um, you know, Princeton and other universities have tried to reform these sort of institutions. The institution that I joined, which was a selective eating club called Cottage Club, was all male until the year I joined. And there still remained all male clubs the year that I joined the club. And this is, this is 1987. And that helped me to see a lot of things and then helped me to think about what I wanted to participate and how I wanted to put my limited amount of social capital behind things that I believed in. That was a very big lesson for me. So in the United States, your undergraduate experience for most of us is about four years. And then after that, if you're going to be in a professional environment, a professional setting, and you go to professional school, there are additional training that happens after that. So my brother went to Princeton. He did four years. And with his organic chemistry degree, he goes to medical school. And he spends another 10 years in training. Me, I went to undergraduate for four years. I studied public and international affairs. And then I went immediately to law school. And that meant I spent seven years in academia. So from the time I'm 18 until the time I'm 25, my job is to actually invest in education. And one thing that I would mention is that the thing which I got from education, I mean, I got a pedigree, right? The, the pedigree called Princeton is a good pedigree. The pedigree called Harvard Law School is a good pedigree. I get that. But what I also got was I got a network. I got a network of people who are extraordinary people. When I say these people are extraordinary people, I'm talking about when I was an undergraduate, there was a woman named Michelle Robinson who was a student in my brother's class. You all know her as Michelle Obama. So she was at college with me. There was a woman named Terry Sewell who was two years in front of me. Terry Sewell was the first black woman to represent Alabama in the US Congress. She was someone who I, with whom I went to school and with whom I'm still in contact. These are the sorts of individuals who created that network. Just as if you go to a university here, some of the colleges and universities here, which have such deep alumni associations and such deep alumni connections, same thing happens in the United States. And so in my situation, some of the most important relationships were with African-Americans, other African-Americans and other black students who weren't African-American, but were from other parts of the world. That became a very, 
very strong network and one that I have relied upon ever since. And you can see as I went into, as I started Impact X, that those are some of the people still who are investing in me and who are backing me. And we've been backing each other's businesses since the beginning of, since the beginning of our relationships. But I would say that the transition after I got out of I, I do have to say one thing. The first day that I went to law school and I took my first class, I knew I'd made a mistake. I went to law school to become the governor of North Carolina. I was going to be the first black governor of North Carolina. But as soon as I went to my first contracts class, which was my very first class, I knew I'd made a mistake because I didn't like any of it. I didn't like the subject matter and I really didn't like the process by which education was happening. But, you know, I stick with things. So I said, how can I make this better? And I said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to apply to Harvard Business School and I'm going to get a dual degree because I think that would be sort of the way to make the law school palatable and bearable. And if I have the business degree and the business school said, Eric, you have zero experience in business. Who would ever admit you to any business school? So that didn't happen. So then I had to figure out a way to construct my own education at law school to give me all of the background that I needed and I wanted in order to be able to become the kind, to get the kinds of experiences I needed to become the kind of person I wished to be. And so that was fun. And the way that I did it was I started focusing on complex negotiation strategy and practice. And I started working for one of my professors, a guy named Roger Fisher, who wrote a bestseller called Getting to Yes, which was the first real book since you know The Art of War that had been written about negotiation theory and practice. And that then, he had taken and spun out a, a consulting firm with a lot of his graduates. Everyone who worked there who was a consultant had a Harvard Law degree. Truly, 100% of people did. And we had this uh, fantastic practice working with private corporations, working with governments, working with public corporations to help them to get the highest return on their negotiation investment, particularly in high stress and unique transactions. And so it gave me an opportunity to then take my law school education and my focus, which was negotiation, take it into practical practice within the world, and then to build from there. And that was, and I stayed there until I actually became a partner, I think five or six years after I started. And then I spun out my own company. And then from there, I spun out another company, which was my first foray into um, fast growth digital companies. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI. But until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, 
If you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. I asked Eric to elaborate on these first companies he helped build. I actually did, while I was at my first consulting firm, I actually started another little company. So I made, some friends and I from law school made a movie. We made a movie called Legal Deceit, and it was one of the most interesting experiences of my life because none of us were movie makers. One of us wrote a, wrote a script, Monica Harris, who was a friend from college, who then university and then went to law school with me. Uh, and she was on law review. She did much better at law school than I did. She decided that she had a story to tell. And two of us said, who are her friends said, uh, one Shamin Proctor, who was managing partner of a big firm in uh, Washington, D.C. Now she is. We said, we're going to back you. We're going to figure out a way to fund this. and We're going to make this into a movie. The movie's called Legal Deceit. And it stars a woman named Leela Rashan. The story is about Sydney Banks. Sydney Banks has done all the right things. She's gone through university. She's gotten all the right grades. She went to the right law schools. And everything has gone well until she gets into the world of work, where it's not just that you can do the work well, but you can bring in business. Anyone who works in a service business understands that your value is not just are you a subject matter expert, can you execute, but can you actually bring business into the organization as a rainmaker? She couldn't become a rainmaker. She's a, a black woman who didn't have connections with people who were CEOs and heads of organizations. So she didn't have the ability to bring in. So there are people who hadn't done as well as she had, who were just leapfrogging ahead of her. And her hold on her American dream is more and more perilous. And would she lie in order to you know, keep her part of the American dream? Would she cheat a little bit? Would she steal? And eventually we get to the question as to whether she'd kill. And that is legal deceit. How far would a person be pushed in order to keep? And when do they say, it's no longer worth it and I'm going to walk away? And this, so we made this film in Hollywood. We hired crew. We did everything. And it was just, I was living in my car um, during the entire sh- filming because we didn't have um, the money for me to be in any sort of a residence. And a good friend of mine, Joe Wojtyki, who runs a company called Max International is my, and, and is an investor in ImpactX, he and I lived in his car, quite frankly. It wasn't even my car. And we made that film happen over the course of a month. And it was sold at the time to Blockbuster and other places. But sometimes if you're watching late at night on, uh, we sold it to Cinemax and HBO. Sometimes late at night you can see it. That was my first foray into starting a business, but it wasn't a fast growth business. My second foray was Speed Solve, which was taking the approach that was talked about in uh, getting to yes, and that I had actually practiced as a consultant, systematizing and then being used in digital transactions. So transactions that start in the digital world, let's get those um, handled by using a database approach and make itself service. So it falls into the e-customer relationship management space and was something that we were building. And then the dot-com crash crashed around us. I put so much money in, in terms of the patents, in terms of working with the technologists in order to get our um, MVP. And this is before we even used terms like that, MVP, because it was back in 1999, 2000. And then from there, 
one day we are talking to a investor about, you know, here's a term sheet for a million pounds, at, a million dollars at a certain valuation. And the next day they pulled that and said, well, we're not going to be able to do this. And, you know, I had to close the business down and figure out what the next chapter in my life was going to be. The venture capitalist who's pulled the rug from under my feet is actually my partner in ImpactX. So isn't that a twist? So Paula Groves was running Axon Capital in Boston, and they were and they were investing in they were a double bottom line fund, and they were investing in women and uh, minorities who were running who had tech companies. That was their that was their entire thesis, and so that was the person. But the manner in which she did it, this goes to say, the manner in which you actually exit a relationship is very influential as to how people feel about you going forward. And the manner in which she did it was so effective that over the years, you know, I was at her wedding, I have been in deals with her since, and when this opportunity came to start ImpactX, she was the first person I called to be a general partner, and now she's the chief investment officer of ImpactX. But um, the emotions, you can imagine what the emotions were. If you have ever had a dream and you've put your all into that dream, and it's not just a dream anymore, it's a reality, and that reality, although hard to make happen, eventually feels as though it's tangibly in front of you and can happen. And then at the last moment, that's that goes away. That's just pulled out from under you. It's not just a gut punch, because that sounds like it's only one. That sounds like it's one thing. It is a gut punch after a gut punch after a gut punch after a face slap after a, you know, chokehold after all of these. It just feels as though life is um, as if you were on an axis and the axis is tilting to oblivion. And so for me, because I'd spent all my capital and I didn't want to say to my parents, you know, I've spent all my capital, I'm poor. I decided that I was going to have to find another thing to do. And I said, I have to reinvent at this point. Maybe I should go into a bigger company. And I looked all over for a role. I thought, you know, maybe it would be interesting to be in entertainment. So I spent some time in Hollywood looking at trying to get into one of the studios or trying to get into the business and legal affairs in one of the, in one of the production companies. I looked at um, consulting, you know, one of the big consulting firms like the um, BCGs and the Baines, uh, since I was in Boston at the time. And then I found a job and this was under duress. I found a job in Washington, D.C. with a technology company called AOL, America Online. It was a job that I didn't really want, but it was the one of the best jobs I've ever had. So AOL is a mid-Atlantic company. Does anyone know any real great technology companies other than MCI and AOL at the time? There were not really any great technology companies there. I was in Boston. I was at MIT. I was with MIT and Harvard. I was with Boston University, Emerson College. There was so much activity going on in that area. And the place that I could find an opportunity was in Washington, D.C., the seat of government. And that's the place where you have defense contractors. And I just didn't want to be there. But when I got hired into the mobile division, and this is in 2001. So think about mobile and 2001. The iPhone didn't happen for another, what, seven years? So there's nothing like that in the marketplace. And I get into this mobile division and I come in where I had been, I had been a, a partner in a firm, not a law firm, a consulting firm with my professor, tenured professor from Harvard Law School and best-selling author. I had spun out my own consulting firm. And with that portion, 
well, I'd taken three of my partners with me and I was the managing partner. I'd started a company and I was the founder of that company. I went into AOL and I was a director. I came, I didn't come in as a, a vice president, executive vice president, a president of a unit. I came in as a director, which meant that there was an executive director and then a vice president and some other people above me. That's where I entered. And it was just, I had to retrench. There was nothing that I, that I needed to, to bring in some more cash into my life. And so I took the job in mobile, thinking that mobile's kind of interesting. It's kind of off the beaten track. And what made it so interesting was I did not so great in that job. And I actually got sidetracked into sort of, you know, it's like, Eric, you shouldn't be doing the big deals with AT&T and Verizon because the people who worked in the kind of job that I did were all lawyers who had been in law firms. They had all been in the big white shoe law firms, which are the big ones, or the golden circle, I think you call them here, that they were sort of very well trained and then decided to go into corporate. I didn't have any of that. So I, I was just going in fresh as, a, as someone who'd never really practiced law ever except for a few summers, and I didn't really do very much then. And so when I went into this space and started having to do contracts and that sort of thing, it just wasn't my thing. I could negotiate, but I couldn't do the, the, the written work that came after it. It just, was, it just didn't come to me. I, don't have that, I didn't have that sort of skill. The thing that I did have, as I said, was this negotiation. So eventually people said, well, look, Eric, we have this tiny little division that's called um, TGIC that's off on the west coast of the United States uh, in Seattle. Why don't you go there? They have a few contracts that they need to negotiate with some, with some partners in um, Japan and Korea. Why don't you go and help them to get ready for those? And that's where I found my spot. TGIC was at, is that text on nine keys. It's the T9 software that helps you to spell out words. And we had candy bar phones by Samsung, Sony, Sajem, Mitsubishi, Toshiba. Everybody made a little candy bar phone. We were the organization that actually provided the embedded technology that helped what is now be called AI to help spell out words, to help do next word prediction, to help do word correction. And that was the technology which was patented that was owned by AOL that they had purchased because they wanted mobile instant messenger. And this just happened to be a tag along piece. The great thing is they had a good team that was working with them, a nice engineering team. And with that group, I was able within a relatively short period of time to say that there's real value in this company. And where we were doing five million the first year that I was there, by the time it was year three, we were doing about 70 million in revenues a year from the same product. And that made my reputation within AOL, within Time Warner, because there was so much free cash that we were creating. And that really changed the trajectory of my life by being in that organization and working with that team, that sensational team in Seattle, who I still right around Lake Union, which is now dominated by Amazon. That's where we were. Nowadays, Eric is a UK citizen and lives in London. I asked him how he got involved with a company called SwiftKey, which brought him to Britain. A guy named Lars Felso Nielsen, who worked for me at TGIC, he had gone to Dropbox, he had gone to Uber, and he had built a reputation. And he had been discovered by Jeff Ben Medlock and John Reynolds, who founded SwiftKey. And they were interviewing him because they needed someone to really handle the enterprise portion of the business as opposed to the direct consumer app business. And he said, no, but I got a guy for you, Eric Collins. And between my time at um, TGIC and my time at SwiftKey, I had actually, TGIC got purchased because it was so, it was so valuable and throwing off so much cash. It was um, given to Citibank to put into a acquisition 
process, a selling process, and we sold to Nuance. And you, people will remember Nuance has just been in the news because Nuance, as in a text input company or an input tech and output technology company, was just purchased by Microsoft uh, a few weeks ago. And so I went to that organization, worked there for uh, three years, helped to do the integration and do my earn out. And then I left to actually go to an advertising tech company as the first time that I was a COO of, a, of an organization. And then from there, after those four years, that's when I then, after you know a little bus stop there, I came upon the recommendation of Lars Feltson Nielsen, still a dear friend who became a partner here at Balderton, uh, was a GP at Balderton in uh, London. I then came to uh, help be chief revenue and distribution officer at uh, SwiftKey. That's how I got SwiftKey because I'd had that heritage and, and knew how to uh, license software. But it wasn't all roses. I asked Eric about the mistakes and reflections he's gained from his time at SwiftKey. Oh, I was hard on people at SwiftKey. Very, very hard on people at SwiftKey. I did not appreciate that there is a different culture, business culture that exists in the UK than exists in parts of the US. I would say it is much more akin to what happens on the East Coast, but I was thinking that I was going to sort of a West Coast environment. And the West the West Coast is very different from any place in the world. Silicon Valley and Seattle are very, very different places. There's no other environment in the world that is like that investment environment and that ecosystem of percolating of solutions. It's just, just none. And so, but I thought that that's what would be happening in the UK and that I was being brought in to do that. I didn't think about the collegial aspects that were associated with it. So I was very hard on the people, people who are kind people, people who are nice people, people who want to do the right thing. And mine, uh, I would take people to task quite a bit. So uh, that is one of the things that I found as one of the big mistakes that I made early on. That's kind of the translation of my cultural values and the things that I find to be sort of default behaviors. And I should have known better because I've always dealt with across culture and across border. But when I have my first experience of working was a wee bit, was a wee bit of an eye opener. And for me, that was the thing. I'm sure I've hurt, I hurt many, I'm not sure. I know I hurt many people's feelings. I know that I um, damaged relationships that could have helped me to get things done um, a little bit faster and a little bit more thoroughly with a little less resentment. That was not my style then. I don't know if anyone who's from my company who's listening to this would say, has it, any of that changed? I think it's changed, but maybe they would experience it very differently than I do. So what I believe that I have actually learned is to not count to 10, but to use an approach that's listen first before attacking. And that is something that is very, very useful in the world, particularly when I am now a person who's getting limited partners on board who have discretion over these asset allocators where they put their capital and are not necessarily used to someone saying, you will do it my way. I'm in charge of these types of things. They're much more collaborative in that way and expect me to be much more of a servant of their needs. So that's an interesting dynamic for me. Uh, and that's something that I did learn. So I just, I, I listen first and, you know, there's no need. And quite frankly, if you watch the money make, you see that I don't spend a lot of time uh, attacking people. There's no, there's no need. I can find that I, that I, maybe I have, you've heard of, you catch more flies with vinegar, with sugar than with vinegar. So I try, I then use a bit more sugar these days. Maybe that's a good way of putting it. In May, Eric became the host of a new TV show on Channel 4 called The Money Maker. Interesting title, but 
What's it all about? I go in to look at companies that are struggling for whatever reason. When I've done this, it's all much of it's due to COVID. But beyond COVID, there's some underlying elements of these businesses which makes them challenged. And I spend my time trying to evaluate fairly quickly what the challenges are, what can be done about them. And more importantly for me is with the infusion of capital and my resources, can I make those businesses replicate a bit more what I'm expecting to do in my venture capital life so that it's not that I'm getting a 7% a seven interest on a loan. It's not that I'm getting double my money in 20 years. It's that I'm getting five times my money in three or four years, 10 times my money in three or four years. That's what I'm trying to do also. So anyone who's watched the show will see that the kinds of ideas that I'm putting in place are ones that are about explosive growth. It's not sort of incremental growth and just, you know, creating better signage. I don't, that I don't really necessarily care about, except to the extent that it drives explosive growth in the business. The reason that I do it is the same, it's sort of an extension of what happens at ImpactX. And because I have investors, I have to actually ask my advisory team, can I do things? Can I do things? Even on my own time, 100% of my time is dedicated to this business. And to say that I'm going to be taking my time and I'm actually going to be using my investment mind to invest in other organizations and to take time away from the portfolio that we have at ImpactX and the pipeline that we have and the team that we have and sort of take that elsewhere, I have to have a great reason to do it. So for me, it's because it helps not only to raise our profile so that more people know that we're out there and therefore we get the best kind of deal flow. We have deal flow like no one else has. I mean, who else what other venture capital firm actually has a primetime television show on a major network and is showing that as a sort of a process to try and create real value and to do it in a human way. That's just not the nature. If you're looking at shows like The Apprentice or Dragon's Den, it's just not the way those shows come across. They look a bit more like game shows as opposed to this is the process we do of evaluation. This is evaluation analysis. This is what the numbers should be based on how much I'm putting in. These are the resources that I'm going to bring in terms of the value add. It's the same thing that I do, right? But I'm just doing it with different types of companies. And we have had an extraordinary amount of inbound based on um, based on just this presence. I get hundreds of emails now a day. Just, I'm serious, emails a day. And that is great for us because it helps us to see more opportunity and to see more things. So for me, this is actually a very, very good extension. And like with ImpactX, where we invest in underrepresented entrepreneurs, these are people who don't have those same sort of support systems in the moneymaker. They're individuals who are in, what, baking, and then there's someone who has pre-prepared frozen meals. There's an organization that has mobile barbering and then invisible repairs. Those are not investment businesses that most of us are looking at who are in the venture space in the UK or in Europe. So it also helps people who don't have access to those types of resources to have access to those resources during a particularly trying time, which is COVID. And the journeys that they take are extraordinary and the impacts that we make on stakeholders' lives and the new opportunities are sensational to watch. Not content with just hosting a huge primetime TV show, Eric is the founder of Impact X, a venture capital fund and group for and by underrepresented entrepreneurs. Impact X exists because I'm tired and there are a lot of people around who are tired of asking the question, what to do to improve the lives of Black Britain? We've been having this conversation for a long, long time. All the solutions that come up require capital. 
and all the capital and the methods by which we traditionally get capital for all of these initiatives is by going hat in hand to some other organization, whether it be government, whether it be private funders, and whether it be philanthropies, to say, please, this is what we believe in. We think you should believe in it. Give us some capital in order to do that. And that's ridiculous. It is not a sustainable way to actually get change, and it is not an empowering way to get change. So the decision was for us, by us. Let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's stop polishing the problem and just get to it. And so we put together in the first fund, which is our pilot fund, we put together four million pounds for fund formation, fundraising, and also for investing. And we started to put that money to work. We did a study first to say what are the categories in which we find underrepresented people and even what are underrepresented people and then around Europe because if we look at just the UK it's a relatively it's a small market it's a it's a frothy market vis-a-vis -vis Europe but it's a relatively small market in terms of its absolute size and there are other organizations in other territories where we could actually then um, be involved so we studied and said look there are digital technology health education lifestyle media and entertainment are places where women people of color people who have um, disabilities, people who are older in terms of entrepreneurs, etc. Those who are underrepresented, meaning they are not found in the portfolios of venture capital companies in, in the proportions that you'd expect to see them based on local populations. So we want to look at those because that represents such an inefficiency in the market. And if we address that inefficiency, we're, we will be able to get great arbitrage, we'll be able to get higher allocations, we'll be able to help those organizations in very, very good um, ways to get them through their milestones and then sell and then get those organizations sold on. And the people who came into the first one, we were very deliberate. You can look at our website, look at www.impactxcapital.com. Look at the investment team and look at the people who are called founding members, who are some of the original investors in ImpactX and ImpactX Launch, which is our first fund. Those people you'll notice are from the United States, from both coasts. They're from the UK. They're from France. 100% of them are black. I'm going to say that again, 100% of them are black. If you look at the investment team, more than 50, they're all black and more than 50% are women. So the idea that we came, that we were going to certainly live by and live sort of our, our values was that we were going to do things um, differently. And we were not going to bring, we were not going to try and persuade people who didn't want to be persuaded and who said, well, you know, it's an interesting idea, but, you know, the thesis of, of underrepresented, shouldn't we really be looking at poor people? and socioeconomic class. Isn't that the issue in the UK? I said, yes, it is an issue in the UK, and someone should be looking at that. Our fund is underrepresented, and this is how we define underrepresented. So if you'd like to work with us, that's fine. Individuals came on board very quickly. We raised all our money in less than a month. And then we started because we knew that our we were going to be trying to have a billion of assets under management within five years. And if we're going to do that, we have to do this with a group that's coming together as a tr with a joint track record, prove that track record, prove the thesis, and that would be also returning capital. We have a double bottom line, meaning that we are returning capital at venture scale with no concession uh, in venture timeframes, and that we also are uh, creating jobs for underrepresented people and not just jobs at the entry level. We want that at the C-suite. We want it as founders. We want it at the board. We want it in engineering organizations and decision-making capacities. And then we also want it in P&L responsible roles in decision-making capacities. And we have side letters with each one of our investments to make sure that on a quarterly basis, we're seeing how those numbers are tracking and what kind of an impact we're making in terms of job creation. And we have been able to 
because of our approach, we have been able to get thousands of companies in our pipeline. We've closed on 25 transactions. We've had our first exit. Um, we invested in a fantastic insure tech company here in the UK, started by Oliver and Alexander, some twins who um, we got in at a 30 million pre-money valuation, the seed extension round. And we took a little off the table nine months later when they had a 3 million Series A and we're able to get that kind of an increase. And of course, those are the kinds of businesses that I know as a technology guy who specializes in AI, who has been specializing in AI and um, particularly computer vision, uh, machine learning and natural language processing. These are the kind of companies, especially since we're in the UK with, with FinTech being such, and, and, and health tech being so important. Those are the kinds of companies we find and when started by underrepresented entrepreneurs, we find we find the, we are finding the best entrepreneurs in the world doing solving the hardest problems and coming up with the greatest valuations. And we anticipate that being able to being able to go forward for years and years looking at that and tilling that field. So the case for Impact X is compelling, but the keen-eared among you might have noticed that Eric has an American accent. So why has he chosen the UK as the main playing field for Impact X? So my perception is, look, in the United States, in the the last report that I saw of BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, etc., people in the United States who have funds, there are about 250 of those at the moment that are in the market fundraising. There are a large number. The first black-led venture capital fund in the United States that I can trace started in 1971, so it's over 50 years old. There are any number of individuals who are actually working, and many of them working in concert with us, to address the issue of you know white supremacy in the venture space. So we spend you know time talking with everybody, sort of where are you raising funds, how's your deal flow going, which deals have you gotten in, can we get in these deals with you, can you get in these deals with us, how does your mandate actually work? So, you know, there is a virtual Silicon Valley, so to speak, that exists among these investors. And we believe that's one of our most important ways of actually addressing this issue of, uh, you know, white supremacy and um, systemic racism. So the question of why the UK, I'm in the UK, and this is where I've made, I became a citizen back in December. So it makes sense for me if I'm going to put down my roots here to make some improvements. And the people who were involved right from the beginning of this, people with names like uh, Rick Lewis, who has the biggest black business in the UK, who will have at the end of the year 20 billion under management as a private equity firm. Ursula Burns, who makes part her home here part of the time, who's the first black woman to run a Fortune 500 company as chair and CEO of Xerox, who's my vice chair. She's on the board of Uber. She's on the board of ExxonMobil. She's on the board of MIT. She's on the board of Nestle. She's on the board of the Ford Foundation. And Lenny Henry, who everyone knows Lenny Henry is a national treasure. These are all people who are investors and LPs in, in the fund. And all of us believe that there is work to be done here. We have not just, these are people who have very different experiences. All are very, very successful. None of them believe that we are in a situation where we are in Nirvana. And Nirvana um, happens to be the UK and happens to be Europe. The issues are systemic. The issues are deep-seated. The issues are seated in various views of the world and sort of what various people can do in the world and who's worthwhile and who creates value for investors. And that all needs to be dismantled and undone. And that is why ImpactX has chosen to do it here. We're glad that we have brothers and sisters around the world who are doing the same thing in their own local markets. And on that hopeful note, I want to thank Eric for joining me on this episode of Secret Leaders. If you want to find out more, then head over to impactxcapital.com. 
Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Next week on Secret Leaders. One of the things I realized when I started this company is that I believe before starting France that, you know, if you have a good idea, if France is a good idea operating in a big market at the right moment, then the company is going to be successful. And it's absolutely wrong. Like the truth is, if you are not focused on the right things, if you don't hire the right people, then your company isn't going to be successful independently from how good your idea is. That was Mathilde Collin, the co-founder and CEO of Front, an email platform that helps businesses manage the ridiculous amount of emails they get. She founded the startup in France, but they moved to Silicon Valley, having gone through the legendary Y Combinator experience. She's developed some brilliant habits to become more effective and scale her business. Tune in next week to find out what she does differently. This episode was hosted by me, Dan Murray-Serta. It was produced by Rich Martel with editing done by Lower Street Media.